grace is greater than our sin. And Habakkuk has grace on his mind as he finishes up. And we were not finishing up the series today. But this is the last chapter. You can turn to Habakkuk chapter 3. And Habakkuk has, say, resigned himself. He has submitted himself to the fact that God is going to bring correction to his people. But he's also trusting in the hope that God will save, bring salvation to his people as well. And that grace that we talked about, Habakkuk refers to as God's mercy. He calls and, and requests and asks that God will show mercy in the midst of his wrath. And even as uh, Sandy was reading a scripture this morning from Psalm 85, there was a wonderful balance between the judgment of God, but God's people pleading to see his mercy again. And that's really where Habakkuk's at here as we finish up. Now, Habakkuk uh, was initially, as we started this uh, book and this study, he was not satisfied. He was greatly concerned. And first of all, he was concerned with the wickedness of his own people. And having to endure that um, and uh, realizing that the faithful seemed few and the wicked seemed many. And he called on God to deal with the wicked, with his wicked people. And remember, uh, God made it clear that to Habakkuk that he was, that he did not miss, that he was fully aware of the wickedness of his own people. And he was going to deal with it in a dramatic fashion beyond what Habakkuk could have imagined, Right. Habakkuk, then, as God points out, that he's going to bring a cruel, terrible enemy called the Chaldeans or the Babylonians to bring judgment upon his people. Habakkuk has another concern, right? Lord, how can you be holy and use such an ungodly, pagan, terrible people as your instrument of punishment against your people? How is that possible? He can't stake what he knows to be true of God's holiness and God's faithfulness to his people with allowing this awful enemy to subdue and capture God's people. And he struggles with that. And so then last week we saw God's second response. Actually, the past two weeks because we had that wonderful phrase where God contrasts the response of the faithful in the midst of terrible things against um, the enemy who boasts in their own arrogance and is involved in false worship. God says his people, the just, shall live by faith. And in context there, it's that even when terrible things come and God allows correction and judgment, that God's people respond in faith, trusting him, knowing that he is a good God and he loves them and he will bring them through that. And then he gives that incredibly powerful description of what God gives to Habakkuk. And he tells him, remember, to write it down in big letters so that everybody can see it. Billboard size letters. It says that God will deal with the wicked. And they will know there is a God in heaven. And the memory of the wicked, even the powerful ones that are subjugating his people, will be wiped out. But the memory of the sovereign God of the universal Lord of hosts will be remembered in glory forever. What an incredible message of hope for Habakkuk. And now Habakkuk responds in praise, but it's also a prayer. In fact, look at chapter 3, verse 1. 
He starts out a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to, how do you pronounce that word? Well, in the original Hebrew, I'm not so sure. Uh, but we could say the Shigayana. Uh, does that help you in knowing what that means? Well, you have that word, and you have also those little words called sila in there. What are those? You ever wondered? Well, the best that we can tell, folks, those are musical terms. And so not only is this a prayer, but this is a prayer set to music. Does that sound strange to you? Well, many of the psalms are that way. And so this really is Habakkuk giving a song of praise and petition to the Lord in response to the reminder that God will bring salvation to his people. God has provided him with grand reassurance. The arrogant won't permanently rule the day, Habakkuk. God's judgment will be revealed to the whole world in due course, and God's timing, so wait and be patient. And the prophet now responds with petition and praise in a very memorable fashion as he describes the Lord's mighty salvation of his people. Let me just, we won't read through the whole passage now. We'll get into that in just a minute. But let's read the end. Verse 12, you march through the earth in fury. You thresh the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointing. Father, let us today, as we contemplate this passage, be encouraged in this awesome display, this theophany of your appearance on earth that you gave to Habakkuk in the midst of his concerns and his worries about what he knew of you to be true and how he, he struggled with um, meshing that together with, with the judgment that you told him uh, was coming. Or thank you that you provided this reminder of your all-powerful, majestic presence and that it comes to help and to aid your people, those who are your anointed, who have a relationship with you. Father, we, as we even mentioned this morning in Sunday school, we live in a dark world today, a broken world, where evil is proclaimed, and people are trampled on, and those that do right are mocked and scoffed and persecuted. It gets wearisome for us, Lord, let us be encouraged today that you are all powerful and that you will come and make all things right and that you love your people and you will show mercy in the midst of judgment. And in that, we take refuge. So help us to learn much and be encouraged from this this morning. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Lord will save his people is the theme this morning. And Habakkuk realizes that. And he is praising God, but he has a petition, a request for God. First of all, we'll see here the eternal God will appear to work his sovereign plan. And Habakkuk realizes God's works reveal his power and greatness. And so even as we start in verse 2, after the prophet makes it clear that he's uh, writing a psalm here, verse 2, O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. 
in wrath, remember mercy. What's Habakkuk saying here, first of all? He's saying, Lord, I got the message. Thank you. I was waiting. And remember, he was waiting at the watchtower, the watchtower of his heart, waiting for God's response. And he certainly got it. Read back through that response that God gave him and marvel at that. And uh, Habakkuk now says, I understand, Lord. I heard and understand your revelation to me. And probably had maybe even written it out at that point, like God commanded him to. And he also, as he thinks on God's response, he remembers the character of God. He's reminded again, because remember, he was concerned. How could a holy God work through a pagan people? And he's reminded of the holiness and the power and the majesty of God and what God has done in the past. Folks, if you are doubting God's work in your life now, remember what he's done for you in the past. Remember what he's done in his word that he's told us about. And Habakkuk thinks back, it seems best to think of it this way, that he's looking back all the way to when um, the God of Israel, Yahweh, rescued, redeemed his people from Egypt. And he remembers the mighty works of the Lord in the past. And so the second part there of verse 2, he says, Your work, O Lord, do I fear. I, um, I am in awe and I'm in reverence of your power and your mighty work, Lord. I know it well. I remember. I know your word well. And so all of this, his thankfulness for God's response, his reminder of who God is. Again, folks, what is the cure for doubting God as his children? Remember who he is, his character, and worship him. This is language of worship. Come before him and worship. And back it says, I fear. I'm in reverence before you. I worship. But that's not enough for Habakkuk. He says, I remember all the things you did in the past, God. But I want you to act now. I want you to do something now. In the midst of the years, revive it. Make it known. Make your power known again, Lord. In the midst of years, make it known. I don't know how many of you love history. I'm a history buff. Let's kind of pass that on to Arden. The rest, well, we're kind of working on that, right, guys? Hudson, you kind of like history. And history is fascinating, and there's always more to learn. But don't you, as you read sometimes, think, especially as you read of God's work in this church, don't we pray sometimes, Lord, do that work today? We want to see that. We can understand Habakkuk's petition here. In the midst of the years, maybe he's saying here, the few years that I have left, I'm not getting any younger, Lord. Make it known to me. And then he says this. He says, in wrath, remember mercy. He's consigned, he's um, submitted to the fact that God is going to bring judgment. God has made that clear to the Babylonians. And so Habakkuk says, I know it's coming, Lord, and I understand what you're doing now. And thank you for that understanding. Lord, I know your terrible judgment is coming through the hand, through the tool of these Babylonians. And I fear that. I'm in reverence of that. But Lord, as well, I know that you're a merciful God. So please remember mercy. Not as if, I think not make a back of understands here. He's trying to jog God's memory. God, remember, you're supposed to be merciful too. But he acknowledges that part of God's character, and that helps. Folks, when we face troubles in our lives and difficult things, remember God's mercy and his grace that we just sang about. 
And remember, it's available to us. And so Habakkuk is balancing out the realization that God's judgment is coming with also the, the fact that God will also show his people mercy. And that gives him comfort. <coughs> and so he praises the Lord. And isn't it interesting here then, God in response to Habakkuk's desire to see God at work, God gives him, and the rest of the psalm basically describes this, is an appearance of God, um, what's known many times as a theophany, an appearance of God to man. And it becomes very apparent here, God makes this appearance in his glory and majesty. And, and so um, Habakkuk describes this, God came from Temen and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Now, that may not mean much to you, but these are the areas south of the land of Israel, probably not too far from Mount Sinai, where God gave the original commandments and where God rescued, brought his people from Egypt. And so what Habakkuk is seeing here is God is again moving from the south, from where he gave deliverance from his people before. He's coming again, and he's appearing again. And then notice that they put a, a nice little seal up there. What does that mean? That means, from what we can tell, the best option is that it means to pause, to reflect on what has just been said. So here's basically what Habakkuk's saying. Newsflash, I just received this. God is on the move. He's on his way. Let's just pause for a minute and consider that God is on the move, that he will be working and that we are going to see the results of his work. And let's, in expectation, just marvel that he allows us that privilege. And so we pause for a minute and reflect on that. And then in dramatic fashion, God's appearance comes up, maybe you could say over the horizon, but he appears, and he appears in majesty and glory and power. Here he's described as light, as we talked about earlier. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. His um, magnificent presence erupts from the south in a beautiful display of splendor. That elucidates praise from all the corners of the earth. And then you have the soundtrack almost of praise. And isn't it true, folks, that the soundtrack of magnificent praise always accompanies God's presence? If we don't praise him, remember how Christ said and how the scriptures say that the rocks and the trees and creatures and people will cry out because they recognize that he is worthy of our song. And we got to do that this morning in praising him and his character. And here that is happening again. Um, his splendor is described uh, in more beauty than the most beautiful sunrise or sunset. Um, I know we've had the opportunity to see a lot of beautiful sunsets lately, even this summer. Last night, Arden and I were driving home from the wilds and there was this beautiful harvest moon, right? That big orange one, and I don't remember seeing one that big in quite a while, and I pointed to him like, Arden, look at that, and he was tired from a full day, and he wasn't quite as excited about it as I was, but I'm like, look, it's a harvest moon, and then it disappeared in the trees, and then a few minutes later, we were driving, and it appeared again, oh, there it is again, and 
It was majestic. It was full of splendor. It was marvelous. But, but folks, the appearance of God overshadows any of that. And his splendor causes the earth to praise him. His brightness, like that of the light, the brilliant rays of the sun that adorn his presence. The Hebrew word there for rays literally means horns. It's like rays of light coming. It's like a part of his nature that comes out and flashes in brilliance. And it flashes from his hand. He, um, it, it, it has the idea of a strong, brilliant light that if you look at it too long or too closely, it can even do damage. It's that powerful. I was reminded as I was thinking of this um, back in August 2017. Uh, I'm biased, I know, but I think my wife is a really, really, really good homeschool teacher. And she was all focused on that eclipse that was happening. You remember that in 2017? It was like one of a kind. It was a full eclipse. And I guess the, the north, the northern half of the hemisphere and, and most of our country would be able to see it at a certain time in the afternoon, if I remember correctly. And the boys were all excited about it, and they were trying to figure out ways. But what was one of the main things that you were told in the midst of that? You were, you were warned, don't look at it directly, right? Because they knew that somebody was going to go out there and just stare at it, like, wow, that's so cool. And it hurt their eyes. Well, I have to admit, I, I went a little overboard on concern for that. As, as the boys were going out, I was like, okay, guys, now look, we can't, don't look right at it. No, no. And we go out and we, we realized that it was there. I'm like, no, 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 don't, don't look at it. Turn back. And you've got these little, um, these papers with these, these holes in them that show you the sun. And we had all these different ways. I think we had some special glasses too that somebody gave us. But I was even nervous about those special glasses. I actually, I know this is overboard, but I looked, uh, read um, where, who made them. And how they were made, because I didn't want to just take somebody's glasses. I didn't know a lot about how much protection they gave. And have my son staring at this thing, and the power of the sun damaged, damaged their eyes. And then one time I realized that I was looking at it, like, oh, no. You know, I was worried that I was going to do something to my I was a little overboard on this, right? They, they enjoyed it. And it was a marvelous display of God's power. But... The point was, is the recognition of how powerful the sun is. And God in his glory, folks, is far more powerful and majestic beyond even the sun. That's his creation. And yet, isn't it interesting, in the end of verse 4, he veils his power. All of this power, and he cares for us and is careful to reveal himself in such a way that we're still able to view and interact with him. There's a sign of his grace, that he just doesn't decimate us with the power of his light and his brilliance, but he veils himself so that we can look, and Habakkuk can continue to even look at the vision. And then verse 5, as we continue, before him went pestilence and plague, followed at his heels. Um, this seems to describe God's readiness to prepare to bring judgment upon the earth, just like he did in Egypt. Remember the plagues and the sickness? This seems, Habakkuk seems to be describing this. The actual word for plague carries the idea of intense heat. 
maybe like a fever or a sudden sickness. But all of this says that God in his power has appeared and he's ready for judgment. And then verse 6 continues the idea as God carefully prepares the earth for this judgment. He stood and measured the earth. He takes his time to carefully consider. Now God is sovereign. He's already got the plan in view, but it's a, it's a point that um, God knows what he's doing. And he's careful um, as he gets ready to judge. He's intentional. He looked. He knows what he's going to do. And even that intention, folks, shakes the nations. All of mankind trembles at even the intention of God's judgment. The look of intent makes the nations tremble. And not only that, but it has the result of decimating mountains. Look at this. Then the internal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting waves. God can cause the greatest, most majestic mountains that we can think of. Uh, you know, I, I have a Mac, and every time you upgrade the software, they have a new mountain, or they rename it something to a new mountain. And now they've gone through all the mountains, and now they're naming it after other things. But anyway, as I would upgrade my Mac over the years, it would be beautiful pictures of these incredible mountains that are literally found all over the world. And I just look at that on my, you know, high retina screen there and all the detail and marvel at God's creation. And it just looks like they've been there for all of time, right? Folks, even those most majestic mountain ranges, God can cause by a look to crumble. That's amazing. It's marvelous. But it's also terrifying. I think of, uh, probably even bring this up, some of you may shed a tear that Old man on the mountain. And I still, you know, even we've only been here three years. And when we drive through the White Mountains and we come back, and the boys will always ask me, Dad, is, is it was it right there? And I don't know nearly as well as you folks do, but I think I've got a good idea about where he used to be. And there's only there's even a twinge in my heart of I wish I wish we could have seen the old man on the mountain. And many of you remember that, and it's almost like losing a friend, right? Because um it just seemed like he would always be there. Now he had he had a point where where um, he had a beginning. I don't know what that was. Maybe it was the flood. Who knows? Who knows? But God reminded us not too long ago that He also had an end. That He wouldn't be around forever. That the fact that the mountains seem like they've been eternal—that's just an illusion, folks. Only God is eternal. All creation has a limited span. Otherwise. And then the Lord of hosts continues, and it has this effect as he prepares for judgment on the earth. And we're reminded his were the everlasting ways. He is the only one who is eternal. And notice then the effects, verse 7, on the people. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. I don't believe in context that these are the enemies that God is referring to. I think ultimately, in immediate context, he's talking about, yes, generally, he will defeat his enemies. But remember, Habakkuk is concerned about the Babylonians. So why are these mentioned? I think there's a picture here that 
as God approaches and passes by, all the enemies of God's people tremble in terror, as if to say, uh-oh, somebody's obviously going to be judged soon. I hope it's not us. And they tremble as he walks by. We all know this. We all have had the experience, I think, if we're honest, about driving. And we hear a siren or a flash of lights behind us. You know, my boys can sometimes be cruel without meaning to. But sometimes they, they get these laser lights, <laughs> these little toy lights that they're giving away free from some sick organization at a county fair or something. And <clears throat> sometimes they're blue and red. And especially at night, we've had times where um, the lights would be off and I'll look in my mirror, I'll look behind and I'll see these red and blue lights flashing and immediately my heart rate, you know, accelerates. And I'm like, oh, unless it's like, it's just the boys. I'm like, guys, turn those off right now. Because there's always that sense of, am I the one that's in trouble? Is judgment coming to me? And then there's that wonderful sense of relief when they pass on by and see you later. Hope you get them. <laughs> Glad it's not me. And they're wondering, all creation and the enemies of God, what is the object of the Lord's Lord of post judgment? I hope it's not me. That is why they're trembling. And then Habakkuk, to bolster this interpretation, he asked the question. And he's going to see, we're going to see throughout the rest of this theophany, this appearance of God, the Lord of hosts will reveal his saving power and the world will marvel at his saving power. And here Habakkuk asks, Lord, who are you going to judge? Verse 8, was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? Who is the object of your terrible wrath? But in the midst of that question, did you notice that God already gives the prophet the purpose for why he has come? And Habakkuk picks up on that. It is that you rode on your horses. Remember, the horses are the symbols of power and the chariots. What is the purpose that God is coming in judgment? Folks, it's for salvation salvation's coming in the midst of the terribleness of his power and majesty and awesomeness. Habakkuk says, salvation's coming. Praise the Lord. Your chariot of salvation. And now the tension mounts to an unbearable moment here at verse 9. Sometimes we miss this if we're not careful, but God stops and he reaches for his bow. Well, what is his bow? This is interesting. The only other time this Hebrew word bow is used is for the rainbow in Genesis. Now, I don't know for sure that Habakkuk's thinking of this, but I can certainly picture God picking up a rainbow and using that as his weapon of judgment, as his bow. Why not? Uh, the, the most majestic bow in the whole world, a rainbow, and he picks up his own bow. Now, we'll talk about different translations options here. This is a little uh, difficult because almost every translation that we have translates this a little bit differently. And it's not because of uh, lack of manuscript evidence. It's because there's only three Hebrew words for the second part of this verse. And a couple of them are hard to translate together. 
But the main idea of this is God is now picking up his weapons and with multiple arrows at once, with only his voice, he is putting those arrows in the bow and getting them ready to fire them off. Now, that is different. And so with that, it's like God gets ready. He's got his bow ready. He's ready to shoot those off. And what do we have there? Another Selah. And Habakkuk says, pause. Think about that. God is about ready to shoot off his awesome judgments. This is something worth reflecting on. This is something worthy of pausing and thinking of God's power and majesty. Well, since we're paused for a moment, let's talk just real briefly about the translation issue. And I don't always bring these things up, but folks, when almost every translation is a little different, I, I need to make it clear. The ESV says you strip the sheath from your bow. That still has the idea of preparing his bow to shoot off these arrows. And he says, calling for many arrows. But that second phrase there is only three Hebrew words. And that's the difficult part. There's a word calling that means speech or word or declaration. The word for many is actually the word oath. And it rarely is used as the word for many. That's a rare use of that word. And then the word for arrow, tribes, rods, sticks, or arrows. It can be used to describe tribes as the um, useful tools of God. Does that make sense? And some of your translations may have tribes in there, but folks, really in context, it's talking about God's weapons that he's preparing. So really, arrows... That translation is seems to be the best. I know the King James is interesting. It says the bow was made quite naked, according to the oaths of the tribes, even thy word. Um, so I'll just point out here that I found in going through, and I looked at multiple translations, I actually like the new King James version the best here. I think it describes this in a most helpful way. The New King James says, your bow was made quite ready. Oaths were sworn over your arrows. And this has the picture that I think correctly translates to Hebrew, that God is literally swearing oaths over his weapons, his arrows. And that means that they will do what God intends them to do. There is no doubt. Judgment is coming. And those arrows of God, God has sworn an oath over them. And it shows his intentionality of his judgment. It's coming. You can count on it. And all of a sudden, then he lets those arrows fly. And as we finish pausing, now is the real action. We see the results of what happens when God uses his weapon. And, and remember, this whole concept of the bow, the rainbow, was associated with um, God's promise to not judge by water anymore. There seems to be a connection between his bow and judgment via water. And so you have this picture as the arrows shoot out, he splits the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. And the effects of the Lord releasing those arrows in dramatic fashion. The, um, not a worldwide flood here. But destruction of lands by water, splitting the earth and sweeping over mountains as these 
described as these mountains, these majestic mountains, literally writhe in agony. Folks, that's power. That's amazing. And the whole earth is in awe watching. Where are those arrows going to go? What is God doing here? And it reminds us even, it says, the deep gave forth its voice. The deepest waters of the earth rise up as just merely one more tool of God's judgment. It's just a tool for him in his hands. And it's so amazing that look at what happened here. Verse 11, the sun and moon stood still in their place. They stand in awed silence as they observe God's arrows of judgment. Um, The sun and the moon are pretty extraordinary creations of God, aren't they? How long have we had the moon for, what, I guess 6,000 years? And it was only in the last 100 that we finally figured out how to get there. (laughs) It's remarkable of God's creations. And if you even uh, study a little bit about the sun and the orbits of the planets, if our Earth, our planet was even a little bit out of orbit and a little closer to the sun, we'd all be burned up, folks. If it was a little farther from the sun, we'd all be ice cubes. The power of the sun and the amazing creation of the moon make us marvel. If you And like I said, even last night, the harvest moon was so beautiful. It's like, wow, that's amazing. And here are these powerful entities that God has created, and they are literally giving a moment of silence because they know that something awesome and terrible is about to happen. So it's almost like the sun and the moon have a moment of silence for what's about to happen as they watch God's weapons of judgment go on. As the light of your arrows, see, we have that description of light again as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. God's weapons are described again in terms of brilliant, overpowering light. And we are called for a moment of silence as that this, this thing is about to happen again. Well, what is the purpose of all this? We finally get to that, this awesome display of God's power. Who's the target? What's the specific purpose? We see verse 12, you march through the earth in fury. You thresh the nations in anger. Here's another clue. Um, The targets of this intense anger of God are the nations. And here the context is the enemy nations. Babylonians or any nation that would rise up and persecute God's people. And the description here is of threshing wheat. You know how we say today uh, that somebody's about to get a good thrashing? That's a great way to describe the prophet here. And even the sun and the moon and the earth says somebody's about ready to get a good thrashing. And it's God's enemies. And in the moment of that terribleness and power, Here is the hope for folks. But what is the purpose of God's judgment? Why? It's to bring salvation to his people. Verse 13, you went out for the salvation of your people and for the salvation of your anointed. And so this describes your anointed, describes those that are truly the people of God in in declaration and in heart. They are truly those that have trusted in God. We would say today, to what we know in the New Testament, those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ are the anointed ones. Folks, that's us. 
and God in the midst of judgment, whatever that looks like. Maybe in our country, maybe in our world today, we might still have opportunity, whether we like it or not, to see this kind of terrible judgment. Don't be fearful. Because God is coming. God has provided salvation for us. He will see us through. And wasn't this a wonderful message for Habakkuk to hear then, who was concerned about the Babylonians coming and what they would do? And this vision shows him God is coming in the midst of his judgment to save his people. This is why Habakkuk is rejoicing and praising God. Because God didn't forget his mercy. His intent in all this is to save his people. All the wicked, whatever nation they belong to, will be crushed. That's the last part of verse 13. You crush. This is that vividness and, you know, kind of a little boring, actually. You crush the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Oh, that's quite a vivid picture there. But what does that say? That God's enemies will be dealt with, but the true people of God, folks, will be rescued. That's his grace and mercy. And we need to proclaim his grace and mercy today to a people who, if they don't change their ways, folks, are going to face this kind of judgment. We need to hear this. I think all of this. In the big picture, the full intent here is that is it a prophecy of the final judgment that will one day come. It certainly describes what the Babylonians would do, but it goes far beyond that. And I think this points to the day when God will send his, who is his anointed one? Yes, in one sense, those who trusted Christ, but we also know that that's a term for Messiah. And God will send his anointed one to deliver this final judgment upon his enemies with the very words of his mouth. Just as, it, just as God was able to put those bows in or those arrows in the bows just by speaking the word, that's a picture of what Jesus will one day do with the words of his mouth. As we finish up here, though, that's a, that's a, that's a pretty awe-inspiring, marvelous, but terrible picture of judgment, isn't it, folks? So in the end, you still kind of wonder, where's the mercy that Habakkuk's been talking about? Folks, get this. I want to leave with this because as I was studying this, it just miraculously, marvelously came to me. There's a picture here that we don't want to miss. Habakkuk asked God to remember his mercy. And then if you think back on what is described here, the salvation of the anointed, the anointed ones. And he just said the anointed one, the Messiah, was the one that would bring final judgment. But it also talks about the salvation of that anointed one. I see here, and I think this is legitimate, the anointed one had to take the full fury of this wrath that's pictured. Who's getting judged? Jesus Christ, folks, had to take all of his wrath. The anointed one took all of his wrath and judgment on himself to provide salvation for his people. And that was God's everlasting way. In the end here, don't miss the picture of what Jesus took on himself, the full brunt of this awful wrath. And yet it reminds us, he was saved, I think this refers to his resurrection. God saved his anointed one. He was resurrected so that we could have new life, so that we could have salvation.
there's the full fulfillment and the end of the story, folks. And that, isn't that cause like Habakkuk to praise God and worship him fervently and passionately? I hope you feel that way today. Father, what a tremendous, awesome picture. The appearance that is terrible and as powerful as it is brings hope to your people, brought hope to Habakkuk that in the midst of judgment, you would save your people. Lord, we marvel and we rejoice at your mercy. This is the mercy that Habakkuk described and called out for. And then the realization as we see the full fulfillment that your very own anointed one took all of this wrath on himself, took your arrows of wrath, and yet you saved, you and you resurrected him, even through his death, so that we could have salvation. And this was your eternal way, as Habakkuk said. This was your only plan throughout all eternity. And Father, we praise you. It was effective and sufficient and glorious. So Lord, let us be encouraged today that we know the end of the story, that we're on the winning team, that we will experience full salvation and be with you forever. But at the same time, Lord, let us be convicted that people that have rejected you or don't know you are facing awful, terrible judgment, that the earth itself looks on in awe. And let this motivate us to be evangelistic and to share salvation that comes to the anointed one, Jesus Christ, with others. Let us be motivated to do that with the time that we have, looking forward to the day when Jesus will come and all will be made right. Lord, thank you for your grace and mercy. And this we pray in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.